Um. <laughs> Hi, my name's Robin. I host a radio show called Ink Studs uh, out of Vancouver. Um, kind of thinking about the convention coming up and seeing that Adam was coming and Brandon's my buddy and we're coming down and I thought we gotta do something get to these guys because Brandon just did a uh, porn comic called the uh, Dirty Parody and Adam <laughs> famously did Dirty Pair um, and there's a lot of influence in there and then I heard Brian was coming and I said Brandon get Brian to come um, so in case you guys don't know Adam Warren, Brandon Graham, Brian Lee O'Malley And so the thing I wanted to do was kind of get you guys together to kind of just shoot the shit about your work, about comics, about what you love, what you get into, um, just talk to each other. <laughs> Go. <laughs> I, feel, I feel so weird with this mic. Um, oh, Brandon, you're going to have to get that mic closer. Oh, it's yeah, yeah. Five feet away from you. Sorry, I, think, I think the point is like to pretend that these people aren't even here. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Don't mind us. And also, the reason I'm having them all here together is with one person over here, it's going to be weird and you can't get really conversational. This is for conversations. I'm sorry, folks, we're over there. Um, so, maybe what we'll kind of jump in with is kind of, kind of a broad question. Um, but I know you guys are all fans of each other. And so, um, one of the things. The really striking to me is I always think of this like there's this narrative in comics, this narrative tradition where you see things kind of building, influences building, influences building. And maybe Brandon or Brian, maybe talk a little bit about Adam's work and what it meant to you. Well, we 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 talking about it the other day. Um, what, what was the what was the thing that you said, Mel, about how uh, it was? Um, it was just it gets it gets gross and gushy when we, when we talk about Adam's work. But um, <laughs> I mean, it it gets back to like for me, it gets back to when I was. You know, fourteen or twelve or something, and and the and what got me excited about doing comic books and it's stuff that like basically talked me into spending my entire life doing this, and and so it's hard to be like casual about that, you know, <laughs> and um, which makes me feel bad. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sending you a bill in a bit, but <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, it was it was a huge it was a huge deal to me, and. Um, and and I found so much other work that I was excited about through it, and uh, and and especially for like you know kids growing up who were excited about manga, and Adam was the first guy to pull it off in a way that um, I think well it certainly resonated with me because I mean I was reading like Ninja High School and everything, but I, I don't <laughs> keep those. <laughs> Most of those guys weren't as good at drawing as Adam. So right, that's a big deal. He's very inspirational. Like he, I can never draw as good as you. But every day I will try. <laughs> <laughs> no, wow. I'm blushing. Is it, are you okay? I need a moment. <laughs> For yourself, um, doing kind of working off manga styles, mm. manga influences, yeah. we didn't have the internet then. What was it like finding these creators, like really investigating this genre or this? Type of work. Well, the uh, I, I encountered uh, manga and anime when I was at the Kubert School, and there was there was nothing. There were and I had no classmates, no teachers that knew anything about it. It was completely sort of an alien kind of thing compared to what everyone else was into at the time. And uh, just going to New York City and going to the New York CFO and Kinokuniya and the Zen Oriental used to be. I don't think that's gone now. But uh, just being going out there and just seeing this kind of amazing new approach to comics that was because I was going to quit the Cooper School in first year because I was remember I was drawing the, the phantom riding an elephant and I was like this is crap like <laughs> I can't imagine spending the rest of my life drawing the equivalent of the phantom on an elephant so I mean, like <laughs> it's unfulfilling I don't give a crap I, that, uh, I could go to a real school and uh, but, uh, but no I just was kind of captivated to see that stuff and it was Really, kind of opened my eyes to what you could theoretically do with with comics, and uh, and that's where I got the sort of kind of deranged conclusion that the Dirty Pair would make a great American comic, <laughs> and and, uh, and started the process of eventually getting that going, but which was a profoundly diluted kind of concept. It just 
happened to work out for me. But I'm always amazed that you pulled that off. Like, you're basically in art school, and you're like, it'd be kind of cool to adapt this thing from the other side of the planet, and then, like, a couple years later, you pull it off. Just, it was just through, like, I had a friend who knew a friend who knew Torin. Right. And it was just, and who was just going over to Japan at the time, and just, had, and had the contacts, and just because of, you know, Torin's wizardry, we actually were able to actually get the rights, and, and actually, originally, we're, we were trying to get the rights to do the animation, the animated version of the DP, and I positively freaked out when it turned, they wanted a lot of money, like, <laughs> and it was not going to happen, so we were going to have to come up with, with our own version of the Dirty Pair, which turned out to be the best possible thing that could have happened, because I would have gotten sick of having to draw the animated DP real fast. So, because with my version of the DP, I kept changing the, the way my art style was changing, and I kept changing their outfits and how they looked, just to, uh, just to do something different. And uh, so I got kind of lucky on that. I really wouldn't want it, wouldn't want to put it and stuck drawing the, the animated version over and over again. Even doing Volgum Crisis of four issues, that uh, having to work off someone else's designs was was kind of a it was interesting, but it kind of tiresome after a while. Even though I that was obviously Shinji Snoda's designs, and he was one of my early kind of primary influences. So. Anyway, <laughs> I have a couple of questions from David Brothers. A couple of questions from David Brothers. Uh, one, they had, uh, there are artistic influences that all of you uh, have that are pretty well documented. What are some influences that no one's really noticed? And I think uh, my friend Frank Santoro was talking about this, like everyone has their secret ingredient. There's this one thing which is an odd thing. I, I talk too much though, you know. <laughs> me, me too, we all do these days. I mean, people ask questions every day. Yeah, I think I've I've given every possible answer. Like I don't have any. I don't I don't have any. I I bought a like, I bought like a the Xanadu. I bought like a sexy unicorn comic the other day, and I just went around the convention showing it to everyone. Like (laughs) check out this sexy. It's like I've been ashamed. It's hard to. I mean, you know, I mean, what what you 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 hang out at my place for? What do I have that's. What's what's she? <laughs> am I just here to answer? Your I, I have a honey liquor. <laughs> yeah, I have a I have a copy of Honey Liquor Sorority that I keep on my bookshelf to, to uh, annoy my girlfriend, but <laughs> it's not good. But do you read it? I've read it. Yeah. <laughs> How about yourself, Adam? I'm curious. Um, even like non-manga influences mm-hmm. that maybe have jumped out that fed into well, your work, especially the more recent and powered stuff, which is very different than the Dirty Parrot work. Mm. Well, I was going to say, kind of before that, before I get into manga, my early influences were all stuff I read as a kid. It was like John Bashema, George Tuska, and Jack Kirby. Actually, Jack Kirby was a big big deal in reprints at the time. So there's still sort of weird little Kirby-isms that are lurking in my work, even though... I can kind of see the Bashema, actually. Oh, yeah. I hadn't thought about that before. And that was that was the thing when I was reading reading comics as a kid. Mar- Marvel had like Bashema and Tuska and kind of you know, really dynamic, amazing artists, and DC had less interesting artists. Right. I mean, every time I'd attempt to read a DC comic as a kid, it was just it was so d- dull and dishwater. But, uh, it wasn't a good time for DC in the seventies. I'll put it that way. Right. When did Garcia yeah, I grew up in the eighties, and I didn't like DC comics. Either, so. <laughs> I, I had them moments because I, I know you're a big fan of uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez oh, yeah. too. And or, or I should say, because m- my teacher Jose Delbo at the Cooper School was the, the, the guy that got him work, so he'd always in the same cadence every time. Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. <laughs> <laughs> to this day, I can I can't pronounce his name any other way than to use the rhythm. Fantastic. <laughs> Anyway. Um, yeah, because for me, his his work was the because he did Atari Force oh, yeah. back in the eighties, and, and that really um, that really clicked with me. And Cinder and Ash, and Cinder and Ash, which is ridiculous. And what was it? He did the Atari Force spinoff, which was like DC's first graphic novel, and it was painted yeah. Yeah. called Star Raiders, I think. Could be. Yeah, that one he did really Twilight good. with Howard Chaykin. Yeah, which was like it was almost Twilight was was uh, Chaykin and Garcia Lopez basically. Um, trying to do with an earlier era of kind of science fiction characters, what Frank Miller had done with the Dark Knight, mm. and 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 kind of show a dirty, grittier version of them. So they had like one of the guys was addicted to sex with robots, and um, <laughs> it was really, it was really, really, yeah, it was really bizarre. And I, mean, I had the first issue for years and years and memorized it, and then I just like last year I got the second and third one, and I just didn't care as much for some reason. Oh, <laughs> like oh. they're good, but it's just like that. It's like it sets up this thing. At the end of the first issue, humanity is immortal, and like, you know, the everything that's like everything has changed now. 
and you're like, oh shit, what do they do next? The next one, they're just like, it starts out, they're eating grapes. And I'm like, oh, I guess that's what they do. And, like, <laughs> <laughs> and something that always irritates me, this is this pet peeve, is the idea, this kind of cliche idea of immortality getting so boring, where people are just like, oh God, you don't know how hard it is to be immortal and live forever and be forever young. And eat grapes. And eat grapes. Because <laughs> I just, I don't, I don't think that's, and it's, I don't think that would be true. I think you just kind of, it's like nobody complains about being young. Like, if you went to somebody who was like seven years, like, but if you could be 20, you know, and, and didn't have like back problems, you'd, you'd, want, you'd be fine, right? You don't want to <laughs> die right now, do you? And they're like, no, it's this, this mortal coil, just stop me living. <laughs> I could do like so many volumes of comics if I was immortal. Like, just so many. And right. if I was young forever and my. Never had like physical problems. At what uh, point could you just start making fun of Jack Kirby and Tezuka? I don't know. <laughs> have to, it would be a lot of years, more years than they lived. Right. Yeah. But I mean, you, you'd want you'd want to play it cautiously, and then like year two hundred, you just like you know, yeah. start doing really photorealistic portraits of them with boners. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Not that I don't love them. Oh, Brandon. Keep <laughs> <Even> classy. <laughs> um, another question from David. Uh, in any medium or genre that shifted your thinking and approach to your work, either in a direct or more oblique way? Wait, one more time? Okay. Uh, <laughs> do you want to ask it, David? Oh, he's here. He's here. He's here. He's here. What have you read that changed your work that's not like, specifically a comic? I mentioned it on another panel, I think I'm talking more over you guys, but I think I mentioned it on another panel that for me it was really a big epiphany to read books because I'd read comic books for so long. <laughs> and when I, like, when I was 25, I was like, I should read books. <laughs> and they're, they're really good. <laughs> I mean, the good ones yeah. are good. And like, I'm specifically, um, uh, like, Charles Bukowski really, really affected me. Just, I mean, he has this, like, creepy alcoholic, you know, womanizer thing, but, like, kind of getting past that, his, his kind of persona is just, the kind of the guy that isn't the facade, I was really impressed by, and he and he does all these storytelling tricks like, um, like uh, uh, he ends stories without there being kind of a story arc. Sometimes, like he'll, there's a there's a line I like to quote where he says that the night kept coming and there was nothing I could do to stop it, and I like that a lot. And it, it gave me a lot of freedom in my own work just to be like, I don't want to like do a story arc, but I just want to draw a guy walking down the street and dealing with something and and not. It just makes it less stressful. And also, um, someone was talking to you about before is, is William mm -hmm. Gibson's work. Mm -hmm. And his story structures, mm -hmm. I was really influenced by. Uh -huh. He does this great trick where he takes, he does this several times in different books, where he'll take three different characters and two different storylines with them that kind of um, go back and forth between chapters. And then by the time these characters meet, it feels like a crossover event. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, oh my yeah. god, that person is, this, is, is finally meeting this person. I can't believe it's happening, but it's in the same book. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um... I feel like one for me is like uh, kind of just like after the first volume of Scott Pilgrim, I realized I was writing a comedy, and it, the first one isn't really that funny to me, but um, or it's just funny in my own weird quirky brain. But um, I kind of started paying more attention to comedy and comedy writing and comedy television. Like Arrested Development was on at the time, and it was like a big deal, and you know I kind of kept up with stuff like that. So I think that's been a big influence on me. Hmm. Screenwriting books too, a lot of that stuff just. And so I kind of became friends with screenwriters and stuff. I just started reading those things, and they help you to write any story. And for for me, kind of the, the big thing was when, when I was in when I was in the Kubert School was I was heavily influenced by the cyberpunk scene of the day, mainly with the slightly more obscure writers than Gibson to a degree, but it was more like Walter John Williams, who's kind of my idol, and uh, Michael Swanwick, who was sort of this amazing sort of idea guy, uh, non-pareil, but uh, that uh, really kind of was been some inspiring stuff, and later on Neil Stevenson, nowadays Charles Strauss, and uh, others with a really kind of interesting sort of interesting take on science fiction, which was a big big influence on me. And, and I did a lot of my early work kind of playing off sort of kind of science fiction themes. And the weird thing is, in, in Empowered, I'm I'm Empowered, I'm deliberately not going to SF on it because I know I will lose people. <laughs> Like, I know I lost people on hypervelocity, on Iron Man hypervelocity, and those people were complaining about that. And I was like, that's barely varsity-level science fiction. If <laughs> <laughs> I turn the needle up. But going from <laughs> Iron Man to, to that Iron Man? Yeah. I imagine that's the, the thing. Like, almost if you put out your own... Like, it was Empowered, you'd have your, your Empowered fans, where Iron Man, there's a lot of people picking it up who probably don't know what they're getting into. Mm. 
Yeah, well, well the, annoying, the annoying thing about that, that is uh, that people automatically invoke the term technobabble. <laughs> now, th- there's a big frickin' difference between technobabble, like, I don't know, like Star Wars radio com chatter in the movies. It's just coming in from point three five. <laughs> what? I, I mean, just, they're clearly just making up stuff to you know to have have Luke have something to say or the other pilots. But and there's a difference between actual actual jargon that actually means something. So I do get kind of annoyed when people like it's not techno babble. It actually means something. You'll know it when I actually do techno babble. <laughs> but then again, well, then again, it, it helps. Uh, I mean, uh, I remember when I was doing my my. Uh, Station copy for uh, Iron Man Hypervelocity. I get what uh, one blogger was like. What is this? It's it's got all these it's got all these made up terms and neologisms and such, and it's really too cool for school. And like <laughs> I know this blogger in particular. Let's just say if this uh, if Hypervelocity was written by a writer with the initials G M, this guy would have been ejaculating furiously <laughs> that copy. Like, oh, same Grant. Oh. But uh, yeah, whatever, too cool for really too cool for school, huh? But, uh, anyway, what what, a, what an uncool school. <laughs> <laughs> Earlier, uh, Brandon and I came up with a little list of uh, particular manga creators. What is it, mangaka? What's the mangaka? Whatever, <laughs> just don't even bother. Um. I'm going to be punished for this one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the first name, uh, Rumiko Takahashi. And so I'm throwing these names out, and you guys just bounce off these particular creators. And right, she was, she was definitely a gateway drug for a yeah. lot of <laughs> She was pretty much my first like real manga. Oh, yeah, same here. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was Ranma. Hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, she's she's like my mom's age, and she's like one of the richest women in Japan, and she's <laughs> been doing comics like for her entire life, and I think that's incredible. I love that. And her stuff is just, it's always spoken to me, and it's really weird, and it's, it was a huge influence on Scott Pilgrim, definitely. Let's that. And, and for me, I mean, it was Urusei Yatsura and Maison Koku back in the day, and they were that, like, that my first sort of... Actually, Urusei Yatsura was my first anime and manga exposure, and uh, it's, it's still... There's still, to some degree, some influence of that and empowered, I would think, or it has a bit of that feel to it. But, uh, yeah. She's kind of like Lum, hmm. a little bit. <laughs> but uh, not not as cool with the bikini. So <laughs> 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 it, actually, it actually is weird to, well, the, in that, er, that scene of the early 80s, that was before fan service as we know it came into existence, mm-hmm. so... It was it was kind of weird to be there at the <coughs> on the on the ground and the on the ground floor when fan service started. <laughs> it's weird to actually go back and look at stuff in the eighties and you're like, oh look, they're they're trying to do fan service. <laughs> it's, it's so but it's like there's a dirty pair of TV episode where it's Kay in her underwear, really not well drawn. But it's like, look, they're trying fan service with their with their crude primitive fan service technology. <laughs> that reminds me like how how dramatically different the culture kind of is now because I remember like. I specifically remember being a teenager, and if I saw someone in like a lum shirt, I would go up and talk to them, and they would be my friend for life. Or now it's like, if I see someone like wearing an anime T-shirt, I'll just cross the street. (laughs) (laughs) And fan service now, it's like they start with fan service. Like, I've been playing this game on DS where like every girl has just like the most gigantic boobs. Like, it's just I don't even get it. What? I mean, it doesn't even cross their mind. I think anymore that a girl wouldn't have giant boobs. I mean, like, like a friend of mine sent me some like uh, Dengeki Dio and uh, or Dengeki, I think it's Moe. It's a whole art magazine, mm. and I looked through it. It's like, man, you guys have gone to a place I can't follow. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, I was like, can't can't go that way. No. And, uh, Brandon, do you have any comments on on Takashi? On, on Takashi specifically? Yeah, yeah. Um, That's what we're doing. I, I saw a, lo- a live action Ronma the other day. It was yeah, live action Ranma. Okay. They just they made it. Explain more. They made the first <laughs> episode live action. It's like on YouTube, but um, something that is I, it white people? No, it's it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what's funny? The way that's funny that, that it works um, kind of well for me because I never understood the. I was like, because uh, they're all like Takashi doesn't vary dramatically the way she draws faces. But uh, the that was an influence I w- on me too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I still want to draw them differently. <laughs> <laughs> that one's pretty. Um, the uh, 
the uh, the actress that they picked for Akane was a very pretty lady, and it made me kind of understand like the appeal. Because before it was like Ron, I was like, why is this guy who looks like this girl like so into this girl that like you know, <coughs> like why doesn't he just go with her sister who's more reasonable who looks the same as her? <laughs> <laughs> but it, so it made a lot of the stuff that from the comic. And, norm- and normally I'm like the biggest advocate for um, not making things into movies for the most part. <laughs> he hasn't even seen Scott no, Pilgrim. I haven't seen Scott Pilgrim, but it's not—it's not that I'm like pissed off or anything. I just—I I love the comic. Like, I actually have his copy of it. Yeah, he doesn't even remember the last time he watched a movie. I, I was trying to remember. I mean, I watch—I watch a lot of like Tom Baker Doctor Who. It's not like I like <laughs> watch a television set. I'm, like, I'll like to sit and memorize like Terminator TV episodes. I just don't like. I'm just not around movies very much. I'm not gonna say I. It was kind of amazing to see that, that that has to be the best adaptation anyone's ever done of a comic. Uh, I mean, is it, is it better than Sin City? Yes, uh, I think so. All right, <laughs> I, 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 it really is phenomenal, and I was so depressed. Uh. <laughs> I mean, I went to see it on a sun, on a Sunday afternoon, the opening weekend, at a theater so far out in the woods I'd use a GPS unit. I was driving past abandoned <laughs> hotels and down roads, like, where the hell is this theater? And, uh, and actually saw it with a decent crowd who clearly were familiar with the comic. I mean, wow. and I, I live in the sticks, so that was kind of impressive. And ooh. I, yeah, no, I, I, saw it, I saw it right as I was starting to draw the final volume of the comics, which was really hard. <laughs> it's just like seeing people spend... A lot of millions of dollars on something that I'm gonna have to do all by myself in my room. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was very discouraging. Wow. <laughs> They're like, sorry to bring you down, man, by making a movie. <laughs> sorry, we hired these guys from Hong Kong to do the martial arts scenes. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> what am I gonna do? Um, Masamunashiro. Yeah, and he's 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 huge. I mean, I I personally, for me, like. I'm obsessed with Mobius and like guys like Mobius and um, you know Phil Barlow and but like Shiro for me is the guy who figured out sequential storytelling in a way that is so far beyond what I'm capable of that um, he does he does these tricks he does he does crazy shit he's got he puts he, he puts entire panels in gutters sometimes he does panels that are not meant to be kind of read he does things that like I I've I've read like uh, Appleseed book book like three I've probably reread like at least like in the hundreds now and I find new stuff all the time and I have friends that are into it too and I'll get phone calls and they'll be like I just found a footprint in the back of the second chapter like what does that mean because it's so <laughs> it's like his writing is really confusing and then I don't know if it's some some of the translation it's it's not he's not following basic story structures at all and his storytelling techniques are so um, impressive and then he's his his focus what he's into is not necessarily what I'm into so like he'll do like he's really into like um, the politics of you know this this future city that he's that he's created this future world and he's so into them that he doesn't need to fill you in on some of the, the details <laughs> and so I remember he just re- knows yeah I mean he doesn't need to share yeah um, I mean I never really read Appleseed when I was younger I kind of missed the boat on it I got Ghost in the Shell like I love Ghost in the Shell I just actually found like one of the old big size. Uh, apple seed things because I got like the small digest size and it's, it's no good. It's too small. Like his and worlds are big. too big to be contained in those small pages. Yeah, yeah. For me, it was apple seed four. It was actually the big, big. I'll always have apple seed four for sure. Oh, I mean, <laughs> he's kind of gone off into his own little world now. Yeah. But uh, but we'll always have apple seed four. But I'm <laughs> but I went through. I've literally gone through. I mean, I don't reference it that much anymore. But but the. Uh, I've probably destroyed like at least three copies of it. It's disintegrated <laughs> after a while because even though he, d- he does stuff that, particularly in, in Appleseed Four, has some of the best fight scenes have done in comics. It gets dark. Yeah, <laughs> the, the knife. There's a, it's like around the group of friends that I hang out with. We just refer to this. There's like a I don't even know. It's like 20 pages or something. Just we call it the knife the best knife fight scene ever. Oh yeah. It's not. There's not even. There's not much competition in it for it's just it's no. so good. But it's actually that uh, I had to break. I had to break for some reason. I was going to do a long Twitter thing about Appleseed Four recently, but never got around to it. But the actual, the main action scene from the warehouse, get the, the warehouse explosion where she's shooting it out with the mecha, right. and then it, then it segues to the knife fight. But it's actually really short. It's like 
it's in maybe 29 pages or something, but, but he crams it with such a ridiculous panel count that, uh, that no other artist, I mean, the only manga I can think of is Ken Akamatsu that uses the high panel count action scenes. But the thing is, normal humans can't do that. <laughs> because he, do, he violates all these rules. Like, I mean, he, he, he does fight scenes entirely with tiny little figures. And that, that shouldn't work. And from normal humans can't do that, but but he can. So he's got that scene in there where it really blows me away. So, so the Duna and the character, the woman having the knife fight with these bunch of guys and, and uh, cyborgs and whatnot, she has an eye patch. And there's a specific page where they're having this really intense fight scene, and one of the guys gets on the, her blind side, and they're all really dense panels. And then there's a blank spot in all these panels where he's on her blind side and, and hits her, and and just. The reader not being able to see what the character doesn't see was so cool to me. That's mm. yeah, was impressive stuff. But oh, but uh, there's a <coughs> there's a long ninja fight in, or it's supposed to be long ninja fight in, in, in Powered Volume Seven, and I was actually I was considering it only did it for about two pages, but I briefly went into Shiro mode and jacked up my panel count and used small <laughs> figures, just because. And it wor- worked out okay, but I'm no Shiro, so I had to I had to let up on that after a while. But really and he, he's one of those guys that like, you know, kind of like Mobius in a lot of ways, where fans of his like feel uh, you can meet someone and they're a Shiro fan, and that's your connection, and you can talk to them all night because over Shiro. <laughs> like I have friends that are, like that's our I have friends that I've known for like ten years, and that's our main thing is like mm-hmm. we're into Shiro, and mm-hmm. and he'll bring other people up to me and be like, he's into Apple, see, he's cool. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you guys are familiar with this um, one artist, Ryan Cecil Smith. He did this uh, book. Um, what was the comic it's from? He like redrew pages from oh Captain the uh, yeah the Captain Harlock comic, and it's really interesting. He did this three issue mini comic thing, yeah. and he just basically took the art but told his story with that art, and it just made me wonder: Do you guys ever go and just like copy? Someone's stuff that you really like just to try. I keep meaning to. I got this great book of like <coughs> Tezuka, like uh, just like random excerpts from a whole bunch of different stories over the years because it was like his 80th birthday last year. Um, and I really want to just go through that, flip through and like draw like a Tezuka page from 1955 and one from 1960 and just, I don't know, I think it would be fun. One day I'm going to do it, but I've never done it. That's my trick when I ever I get. Um, kind of frustrated and un- uninspired about it as I go back and I redraw panels from a lot of my favorite stuff. And I always just do it quick in pencil on my sketchbook. And I, it's like Paul Pope will do entire page studies in ink and everything. Mm-hmm. And I don't understand. That seems insane to me. Really, I'm like willing to blow like half an hour on it where he's like, you know, I'm going to spend two days just redrawing a Cornel Maltese page. But yeah, I mean, it's, it was funny. I was looking through a bunch of Adam's originals and I was like, oh, I've redrawn all these. <laughs> oh, wow. I've done these. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've fixed some of these. I'll show you later. <laughs> I, I can't actually say I ever did that. I don't like drawing that much. But uh, <laughs> same here. <laughs> but, the, but I mean, I have t- tended to kind of, kind of uh, duplicate elements because my a lot of my kind of stylistic things are sort of weird little elements ripped off from a particular artist thing. Like, like uh, I mean, it was like uh, the way I draw teeth. The kind of exaggerated throat teeth is from the three by three eyes guy. Oh yeah, would, oh, when yeah. guys would when people would yell in that, I, that, I love the way he does the, the yelling mouths. I love like the character in there whose his eyes are always closed. Yeah. Eyes are always closed. and there's yeah. one panel where his eyes open, and it was such a big deal to me. I was like, like, oh my Whoa. god, his eyes open in issue three. <laughs> <laughs> Take what you can. And then a little more recently, I've been using this technique that has been rather unkindly, if accurately, referred to as Muppet mouth. <laughs> <laughs> It's hard to describe, but you'd know it if you saw it. And that's from an, that's from a manga artist named uh, Asano. I can't remember his full name, but uh, I really right. like that. Asano Henson, right? <laughs> <laughs> Muppet mouth. Uh, anyway, <laughs> actually, actually, that is ca- that is kind of amusing. The uh, the uh, I was uh, I was m- bitching online about the way I draw lips or noses or whatever. I mean, eh, but uh, but it's I just kind of one guy like, well, he's totally jumped the shark with the Muppet mouth thing. Like, <laughs> really? The way I draw mouths, I've jumped the shark. That's it. It's funny because you, like, you've set yourself up in this weird way where um, you, you, I imagine some of your fans don't want to see you evolve. Because, I mean, I think you started out pretty, uh, like you were, you know, I mean, it's not like you weren't drawing when you saw the first manga stuff. Yeah. And so um, it's like you're, you're 
you're doing your own version, uh, your kind of reaction to manga, but but people seeing it are like, wait, that's not manga, but it's mm. it's not like you grew up in the culture, and it's yeah. it's it's, it's, a, it's a new creature. Yeah. So it'd be it'd be a shame if you were like, I, I'm not going to try this style of mouth because you know, <laughs> people on the other side of the planet haven't perfected it yet. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, w- I was, I mean, I never actually tried to make have my work actually look like any given manga artist. It's just that they, 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 Chiro was an influence. I wasn't trying to actually, actually kind of bite Chiro per se, but uh, it just it, it just was what would appeal to me. But I I don't know. I never I found it kind of a sterile exercise to try to like I'd like my work to be indistinguishable from an actual mangaka. Like what mangaka? Because uh, that's a whole thing. So because there was there was one artist that uh, one artist was talking about uh, about doing manga and. and uh, he said he liked the Dirty Fair stuff, but the storytelling wasn't good enough. If it, w- if it was, it would have been manga. It's like, <laughs> no, it wouldn't have been manga, period, dipshit. <laughs> because there are people that actually use it as a value judgment. I was like, no, just keep it simple. Japanese conflict, Japanese people. You know, I mean, you can get into some weird kind of technicalities over nationality and such, but it's like, no, my work wouldn't be manga, period. <laughs> so. Right, well, I meant just the, just the page length and the format of American comics. It's like, it was, oh. if it was manga, you'd be, you know, did, you'd be boring people. Because uh. your 20-page chunks are not going <laughs> to... Uh, yeah. Do you get that at all? The, the kind of reaction of your stuff being, kind of people expecting it to be in, in stuck in a manga thing? Um, you always see, like, the kind of, like, the forum threads pop up where some kid is like, this is my favorite manga, Scott Pilgrim. And, um, and then, like, 20 people jump on the kid, and they're like, it's not! Um, so I don't know what the hell it is. I just draw it. I don't know. <laughs> I let the kids fight it out. Right. <laughs> it's like a playground argument. It's like a dog fight. Uh, Otomo. What about him? <laughs> He's God. I, I love how he. I like the, the cool. reference in Scott Pilgrim, where where you just have the the casual reference, and like what happened after he blew a hole in the moon. It's like oh, then oh, like the thirty pages, yeah, yeah. The, the meta thing. Yeah, I wonder what that reads like if people that don't know Akira. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I, I think it's just kind of it's funny on just like a weird, like non sequitur <laughs> meta level, right? Which is what I kind of try to do with those obscure references. It's kind of the only way to make them land. Um. But yeah, Akira, I uh, I don't know when I first. S- I mean, I saw the, the you know the anime. Obviously, mm-hmm. it was like the it was huge for me when I was in high school, and uh, I saw it. I actually saw it on the big screen when they like re-released it like about ten years ago. And then uh, I didn't really read the comic until around the same time because um, our friend Locke had the five collected hardcovers from Marvel, the colorized ones, hmm. which were, like, incredible. So I read it in color first, and then I didn't realize, apparently they never released the sixth volume or something, or he didn't have it anyway. Hmm. So I only read up to five, and, like, he was like, oh, I'll find it. And, like, he never told me they didn't have it, so I never read the end until, like, they re-released it a few years later. Oops. Anyway, oh. it's amazing. Well, when I first saw Kira, I remember actually thinking it was European, because I saw the color mm-hmm. version, and I, I remember thinking, that, yeah, I was used to buying the the, the French... Catlin communication books that were like 50 pages long and the entire story and issue two of Akira was out and I was like oh two books of it are already you know they must have just collected like two years worth and uh, <laughs> it's like three weeks worth yeah and, <laughs> and later on I've really gotten um, incredibly enamored with with Otomo's kind of pre-Akira work like uh, the Domo, stuff whatever. never pre-Domo like, yeah. like he did all this he was doing the craziest stuff and I, I've read people um there's a, a Japanese critic who actually was complaining about him kind of dumbing his stuff down when he did Akira. And uh, it's crazy because, like, Akira is such a held in high regard. And the idea that, like, oh, man, he was really experimental before and then he just got tired and did Akira. <laughs> <laughs> but his early stuff is really, it's really out there. He's got, um, I've got, like, a, a book he did that's just uh, short parodies of fairy tales. And like, there's a Wizard of Oz comic where the it's just the the whole idea is that Dorothy's going down the road, and all of the Oz characters she meets have giant boners. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just I don't know why you draw that. I can't read it. It's just <laughs> hilarious and bizarre. He did an entire comic which documents a war. It's like an Akira volume sized, and um, it starts out in the Middle East and uh, and goes all over. There's there's chapters. I thought it was an anthology of stories when I first saw it. And there's chapters of it set in Manhattan and uh, in Japan, and just kind of it shows the effects of a war all over the world. It's such a like it seems like such an adult project to do. 
Yeah, and I just heard he's just went back to doing serialized manga again, which is pretty exciting. Yeah. I was joking that he heard about Mobius' death, and he was like, oh, shit, look at Steam Boy. I need to get back on the horse. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen it either. <laughs> I have it. Yeah? I haven't watched it. Right. <laughs> I, I saw it at a film festival, Toronto Film Festival, like, when it came out. Mm-hmm. You're not missing much. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Otomo was kind of also... I, I kind of forgot. No, I was more than the curb was cool, but I, I was I was definitely ripping off a bunch of stuff straight from Shiro. The way I, I mean, Otomo, because I, I, yeah, I didn't encounter Shiro until I, w- I went up to California for the first time in third year in the Cooper School, and I came back with the Shiro books and Appleseed one through three. And my classmates were, I got to like, wow, this is this is one of these Japanese guys. It's pretty good. <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> I, I love when you when I'm personally when I'm working on art and there's something that you're drawing and it's like it's such like somebody owns that. I was drawing a, a crater. It was like a, a a bunch of buildings destroyed in a crater, mm-hmm. and I was just thinking like like Otomo owns that now. Like if you're, you, oh, yeah. you you have to pick up his stuff and look at it now if you're going to draw a crater, if only to look that you're not ripping him off. You know, oh, yeah. no, I've I've ripped that that Olympic crater off like right, a you, million times. If you're going to do a night it's fight, the crater is like the platonic yeah. ideal of craters. Yeah. <laughs> um. Here's a, a non-crater question. Um, <laughs> another one from David. Thank you, David. So happy. Um, do you have specific music you'll listen to or a specific soundtrack when you're working on a project? Uh, actually, no. I mainly listen to a, a ton of sports talk radio, like constantly. I mean, uh, I listen to music. I can listen to tunes when I uh, only when I'm doing dialogue because I can't I can't hear someone talking when I'm trying to write dialogue, and yeah. then it's just random I, whatever it comes up on iPod shuffle. So. And you you do music as well. I'm I, like I make music. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do sometimes. Um, I actually do like make like a playlist for each book, but I usually just listen to it when I'm trying to write, just to kind of get me in the headspace. When you're drawing, like drawing takes so long. I've listened to like a lot of audiobooks. Yeah, like I, I remember we listened to like Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, which is like eight thousand hours long. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> got me like part of the way through Scott Pilgrim Volume Four. It's, it's, it's funny to me because, um, first of all, I've, I've listened to a lot of his musical drawing, which is weird. But um, <laughs> but uh, also, um, like uh, like Adam's stuff, I remember specifically, you have the Dirty Pair doing a Faith No More karaoke thing. Yeah. And it's just the same, I'm mean, Frank Miller, I did the same thing with Frank Miller's, um, him talking about Merle Haggard. Like, I found mm-hmm. a lot of music through artists I like. Hmm. And, um, so Pope yeah. Does that a lot too. Yeah, I don't think I like the same music as Pope. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, I tried. Um, but yeah, I've been really into it. I'm really into it because it does take a long time to do a page, so you mm-hmm. have a lot of stuff that you can put on. And I have different modes, like like I'll just put on like uh, like just like jazz radio. I'm totally uninformed <coughs> in jazz, but I'll put on like a jazz radio station. If it just sounds like weird, then I'll leave it on. And that's what I really want to have to think. And I listen to a lot of rap music because I'm obsessed with puns. And you know, that's stuff like Faith No More. Well, the, fu- the funny thing about when, you, when you're actually drawing for endless hours is that... Uh, that every now and then a page will become encoded permanently with whatever you're listening to yes. when you're working on it, and you'll you'll flip through the book and and you can instantly you'll you'll flash to like I've got some pretty pair of pages where I was listening to the uh, I was listening to a talk radio station during the Soviet coup in uh, ninety I think it was ninety one but right. but that flashes back right, right. to it. That's something I think about a lot about how past work becomes kind of a time capsule for you, mm. and um, like. Uh, I keep mentioning Pope, but something that Pope is doing right now is he's redrawing parts of the early THB. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's kind of frustrating because I, I love that work, and um, and it really represents kind of a time in my life and, and a time in his life, I imagine. And and it's it's nice to look back at my old work, and even if it's badly drawn or whatever, it's like, oh, well, I remember this, you know, I remember what I was doing the day I drew right. this. And it's, there's not, it's or you like remember how hard it was to draw that, and that's why it's badly drawn. Yeah, and even like a photo <laughs> of, of you on that day, it's like you can be like, oh, I don't, I don't remember this, but I mean, it's, it, I can't imagine ever doing a page. I imagine like Tezuka probably just like, oh, I don't remember this book. What is this? It's only four. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember. I was listening to the fourth Harry Potter book when I was drawing Volume Two of Scott Pilgrim. So every time I look at that one, this one page, like the spread of like these trees, he's going to like the school in the flashback. Mm-hmm. I always remember like the dragon. Breathing fire on Harry Potter. That, that reminds <laughs> me. It's just weird. Like it's weird. Like synesthesia kind of thing. Totally. That reminds me of the lowest moment of my life. That uh, it's I, not right I now. I liked it. <laughs> I liked it. I liked to joke about being lowest. I was. Um, I used to draw porn comics, and I was living in New York, and uh, I'd 
I lost my apartment and I was staying on my friend's couch, this guy named Filthy Rich, and um, <laughs> it was Christmas Day and it was snowing outside and I had a deadline to finish porn comics and I was listening to the Lord of the Rings audio tape and Filthy Rich was in the next room having loud sex with a girl <laughs> and I kept hearing the bed squeak and them moaning and every time I'd hear a noise I'd kind of be frustrated and I'd turn up the Lord of the Rings audio tape <laughs> like a porn comic and I just, at one point I put my head down on the desk and I was like this is embarrassing <laughs> <laughs> thank you Brandon I'm glad we know that now yeah. <laughs> Um, I think I'm going to open it to some questions from the audience. Folks have any questions? Yeah, go ahead. Um, for each of you, uh, what would you say is like one of the hardest things that you had to overcome, either as an artist or just personally, in terms of being able to make comics the way that you want to make them? Um, kind of the kind of the issue, uh, kind of the, the biggest issue is actually the pay. That uh, I have to, I have to take on periodic sort of real, in fact, real jobs to subsidize and power, or uh, any other work I've been doing. I mean, uh, if I hadn't gotten, if I hadn't landed like uh, the, what what DC work I did in the end of the '90s, I would have had to quit comics. I mean, it, I was doing way too badly to to keep kind of slaving away at what I was doing. Because it's one thing to be kind of dirt poor doing comics in your 20s, but once you get into your 30s or beyond, it's no longer quite so amusing. And, uh, <laughs> Like, wow, poverty chic is not so awesome when you're getting gray in your beard. So, I mean, like that was an interesting thing about the Faith Aaron Hicks had, had the, uh, the piece out a couple months ago, mm -hmm. uh, talking in in rather startling detail about how incredibly cheap her lifestyle is. I was I was kind of unimpressed by that actually. Yeah? <laughs> oh, right, because everyone was just like, "Oh my god, she goes through this oh, yeah. stuff," and I was just like, "I don't, I'm, I'm I might be like, I, I." My exceptionally, I grew up kind of grossly poor. Like uh, I'm very like as as uh, you know projects as you can get. And uh, you're like the M and M of comics. I'm the M and M without the success. Worse. Without the success later. But and so it's like, and I remember. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I I, I don't want to brag about poverty or anything, but I just and 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 and, and not to like shit on her experience or anything, but it was there's something. A, there's, there's something I, that irritates me when people who I feel like, on some level, our our jobs are to be entertainers to people because people don't come to us to and 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 it's good to put that information out and talk about it, but it's good to be kind of honest about it and sincere about it and maybe I just I sometimes, and maybe not so much for her but there's a there's a level of people complaining. I was I was, I was picking on a friend of mine because he was complaining on Twitter about how like. He was like, man, it's really hard getting by. And I was just like, dude, you don't have a job. <laughs> well, <that's laughs> and he was like, I don't have health insurance either. And I was like, yeah, but you don't have a job. <laughs> and that's something for me as I keep trying to remind myself I'm, that it's not, I, I feel like I'm pulling off a massive scam if I can pay my rent and not feel um, demeaned as a human being. <laughs> but um, I'm not graying in my beard yet. Yeah, well, I mean, it's just that I, I have friends that, that – uh, that have you know that they, that came up with me that right. have not been incredibly successful and they're heading into their forties and fifties doing as bad as they were in their twenties right and that that's that's not promising for it's the long terrifying. term. It's terrifying. In comic books, there's no there's no clear cut way to make money. There's a lot of books that you'd think would are making good money that the people is, the person has never seen a check and they lose money every time they do it. <coughs> yeah. Or people who are your hero and you expect they live in a mansion somewhere, but they're oh, actually yeah. just in an apartment drawing comics all day. Yeah, it's always really funny. The, the reality of things is always so... I remember the first time, um, there's this comic artist named Joe White, who was a huge fan of... I love his work. He did this comic called Twilight X in, in, the, in the 90s. And um, the first time I'd met him, I was 16, and this was like my first impression of what a comic book artist was like. And uh, I remember I met him at like a Denny's. I had some older friends. So it wasn't like he was just hanging out with sixteen-year-olds. <laughs> and I had, I had some older friends that um, that brought me to to, to meet him because they knew I liked his stuff. And um, and he met us at a Denny's. Went back to his place. And I think he had, took out a gun and unloaded it first thing when we got back to his place. And yeah, um, yeah, he had a motorcycle it. parked in his. He had this tiny little apartment with a motorcycle parked in the middle of it, like it was a garage. And all over it, he had porn everywhere because he was making his living doing porn. And I just thought he was like. I thought he was doing this Antarctic Press comic. I'm like, oh, he's fine. You know, I always, like, I dropped out of high school really early, and my impression was like, you know, I'm just going to do comics. No problem. I'll make a living. And the reality was just, just uh, appalling of what it is. And, and, 
and I had to do. I wonder if that influenced me having to do porn later. Mm-hmm. And the first thing is that, like now, if you're breaking into comics, like porn isn't really even a viable thing to make no. a living off of. Yeah, the internet ruined porn for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that was that was the, the sad part to think about is that uh, that what I had to look forward to formally was to was getting old in comics and becoming unemployable, which is what happens. For now, it's like I'm going to outlast the comics field. Yeah. Which is in a way, kind of, uh, it's about the same effect, really, <laughs> but because the old guys that can't get any work anymore, that's and then that's young people can't get any work either. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's in, in some levels, it, I, I almost feel like that might be good for the medium when it kind of because <laughs> because people are not going to stop doing comics, but it, I mean, it's nice if you can pull off a scam and live off of it. So optimistic, Brandon. But yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I have high hopes. But yeah, I, I studied a lot of older cartoonists, and it's. It is terrifying what it does to people. I mean, like recently, Alan Moore has had a problem with doing the Before Watchmen thing, and, and to me, it showed like them doing a book that he specifically said, "Please don't do this." It showed that the industry is kind of okay. It's like everybody respects Alan Moore, and it's like this industry is just okay shitting on people that everybody respects. And so it, it's almost yeah. like you can't earn respect then. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I totally like you made that argument. Like he, he basically just said, "Please don't do this," and everyone just said, "Fuck you!" Like everyone, <laughs> right? And that's like. Your argument is the best argument, as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) Just be nice. Anyone else have any questions? Oh, there we go. Go ahead. Oh no, they've been they've been they've been they were, they being were dicks for since start of comics. But I mean, they, they in the abstract. They, no, I mean specifically like Marvel and DC. I mean, uh, I think w- what it's done for for me a lot is kind of taken the value out of a lot of that in comics. It almost means that as as a because I really like the culture of comics and I really like the people in comics, and and I think it's cool. It's it's it really kind of believe that I can. We can have communities that are outside of the financial end of it, and kind of treat each other with more respect, and um, you know, and kind of like take care of each other in a way where, you know, deal with creator, you know, have creators kind of dealing with with other creators, and, and you know, I mean, it'd be nice if people can, you know, be cool to their heroes or something when they <laughs> when they succeed. And I'm just rambling, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I, bas- I think that's I think that's a really I think that kind of proves in a way like kind of them being shitty to Kirby and then them being shitty to modern day guys it's like these guys are you know they're jerks to your heroes don't, don't trust those people you know but they pay really good so it's hard <laughs> <laughs> I mean I, I've done work for DC while I shit talk them publicly which also makes me respect them less but <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it says about me Ah, but those those handsome mainstream page rates. Yeah, it's this guy. I've actually I've been mad at, at getting a check from them because I'm like, this is not worth this check. <laughs> <laughs> but it should be. It, it People should get paid more money. Yeah. Yeah. we devalue ourselves. Yeah, and that might be hard to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of grim to consider that uh, I've had a page rate at uh, Wildstorm DC for since '96, and. Uh, and actually, I can't even earn that page rate because it's too. It's date, it dates back to the Wildstorm era. That, oh uh, yeah. So that that's kind of gone by. But but man, like so I was talking to somebody about talking about raises, like raises, <laughs> comics, like really. But, uh, hey, but but no, I mean I got to say that uh, I, that the the mainstream work is. Uh, I, I like to do it. It's kind of it is kind of fun to play with other people's toys, but. Uh, but the, the writing it is writing it is, is kind of fun to, to deal with, but uh, drawing is kind of a bit more. And you're putting that much more time into it, and you're slowly killing your hand for somebody else's stuff is that can be a bit much to think about. But I'm rambling now too. All right, no, it's <coughs> where are we going, Robin? <laughs> good, good, Captain Robin. <laughs> I think we have time for one more question. All right. Adam. Yeah, I've seen some here and there. Though it is actually weird. I've actually seen. I saw a, a like a commission piece that somebody did of the uh, long ago. I I almost had approved a Dirty Pair Superman crossover before politics I shredded that. But somebody did a somebody commissioned a thing from an artist with this really. 
demented version of my Kane Yuri with Superman. I was like, is this what you guys see when you look at my stuff? Like, <laughs> good it, God, it's horrifying. Wasn't it dull version? How, how did no. you feel when you saw Brandon's? Oh, no, I yeah, I should get it. I felt really, I, I felt kind of awkward. Cause I, so I did a, I, I was like asked to do something for this thing called The Thickness. It's like a kind of indie porn comic thing that uh, Brian's hands and Michael DeForge put together. And, um, and I was like, yeah, maybe it's an excuse. I can totally do like a dirty pair. Um, I can totally do like a dirty pair thing. And so I was like looking at him stuff, like just like I just had it. Like Robin did a video interview with me while I was doing that, and it was just like my desk was just a bunch of your comics open. Oh wow! And, and while I was drawing porn, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I finished it, and I was like, I should send this to him. And I sent it to you, and I, I felt really weird in the end. I was just in, I did porn off of this guy's work and sent it to him. That's, that's really cool. <laughs> And you're really nice, and he wrote me back, and he said, "Well, the one I had, she had tan lines." And you're like, "Well, the one thing is, like, that far in the future, they don't know what tan lines are." Yeah. I was like, "You're bringing reality into this." <laughs> 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 it's not techno babble. That's like the Shiro thing. You just he knows the world, and like he just had to tell you. He had to share that with you. Yeah, it's funny in later Shiro when he gets really um, kind of apologetic for his stuff, and he'll he's so obsessed with keeping things authentic in his like weird fictional world. But so like in in the second Ghost in the Shell, which is complete crazy madness on a lot of levels. <laughs> like he has, it, like on the beginning scene, there's a thing that shows like fighter jets coming in to attack this like woman in a bikini who's like a cyborg on top of a, standing on top of some submarine. And he has a little note on the side that's like, this this jet formation is totally inaccurate, but I had to do this for the composition of the page. It's like, <laughs> don't need it. <laughs> <laughs> All I already forget what the question was. Uh, seeing other people influenced by your work. Oh, yeah, and I was going to go back to the porn thing. Because <laughs> I, I found my assistant... Um, uh, I had an assistant on Scott Pilgrim Volume 6 who was just this kid who um, I found doing a parody of Scott Pilgrim Online. Like, a really well-drawn parody that made no sense whatsoever. Like, the writing was not... He's, like, 19 or something. And then later I found, like, this huge stash of Scott Pilgrim porn that he had drawn and uploaded to this website. <laughs> but anyway, I hired him because he's great. And, like, <laughs> and then one day I was like, I, I know you drew all that porn. And he was so embarrassed. It was like his mom, it was like his mom caught him or something. Like, this is John Pants, right? This is what? This is John No, not John. John oh, okay. didn't do the porn. Um, my other is Aaron. Oh, okay. <laughs> John does Shiro porn. But, I mean, oh, okay. I knew he, he could draw. Like, he could... You can draw everything. <laughs> 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 it's like, <I> yeah. <laughs> all right. Thank you guys for coming and thank all you all for coming. <laughs>